Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with Facebook meta reinstating a racist populist demagogue who led a violent coup against the United States government as the influential global social giant continues to put profit over the safety of its users and the survival of democracies around the world, with far-right and authoritarian leaders using the platform to incite violence and genocide while spreading hate and disinformation. Joining us is Wendy Weyer, the president and co-founder of the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism, where her work focuses on the effects of extremism in our society, systemic racism, economic inequality, immigration, criminal justice reform, and LGBTQ rights. Previously, she was the Chief Communications and Development Officer at the Southern Poverty Law Center and is an author of a new report at the Global Alliance Against Digital Hate and Extremism, Democracies Under Threat, How Loopholes for Trump's Social Media Enabled the Global Rise of Far-Right Extremism. Then we'll look into whether weapons deliveries from the US, Germany and other NATO countries will arrive in time before a new Russian offensive and mistakes made in dealing with Putin as the war in Ukraine will soon enter its second year. Joining us is Angela Stent, a senior advisor to the Center for Eurasian, Russian and East European Affairs at Georgetown University and a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution where she co-chairs its Hewlett Forum on Post-Soviet Affairs. From 2004 to 2006, she served as National Intelligence Officer for Russia and Eurasia at the National Intelligence Council, and from 1999 to 2001, she served in the Office of Policy Planning at the United States Department of State. She's the author of The Limits of Partnerships, U.S.-Russian Relations in the 21st Century, and most recently, Putin's World, Russia Against the West and with the Rest. And we'll discuss her article at Der Spiegel, as long as Russia has 6,000 nuclear warheads, it will remain a threat. Then finally, we'll examine the relationship between the Afghan and Pakistan Taliban, which first claimed credit for the bombing of a mosque in Peshawar that killed over 100, mostly policemen, and wounded over 200. Joining us is Christine Fair, a professor in the Security Studies Program within Georgetown University's Eben A. Walsh School of Foreign Service. She previously served as a political officer with the United Nations Assistance Mission to Afghanistan in Kabul and is the author of Fighting to the End, the Pakistan Army's Way of War, and in their own words, Understanding Lashkar-e-Taiba, and she speaks and reads Hindi, Urdu, and Punjabi. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our many sustaining listeners and donors whose continued and growing support for background briefing over the past year has maintained our commercial-free independence as we build our online podcast audience, broadcast on a growing number of stations nationwide, expand our production team, create a new home for our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org, and make sure every program remains available to all with no paywalls. If you haven't yet and are able to make a monthly contribution, visit backgroundbriefing.org donate, where your tax-deductible contributions, large and small, enable us to provide you with a daily briefing on important issues in the news as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Wendy Weyer, who is the president and co-founder of the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism, where her work focuses on the effects of extremism on our society, systemic racism, economic inequality, immigration, criminal justice reform, and LGBTQ rights. Previously, she was the Chief Communications and Development Officer at the Southern Poverty Law Center, and she is the author of a new report at the Global Alliance Against Digital Hate and Extremism, Democracies Under Threat, How Loopholes for Trump's Social Media Enabled the Global Rise of Far-Right Extremism. Welcome to Background Briefing, Wendy Vaya. Thank you. It's good to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And the report that came out from the Global Alliance Against Digital Hate and Extremism today is in response to Facebook Meta's decision to allow Trump back on their platform. So they are, in effect, reinstating a racist populist demagogue who led a violent coup against the U.S. government. And clearly, as you've pointed out in your new study, that they care more 
about profit than they do about the safety of their users or the survival of democracies around the world, which is under, under attack from these far-right authoritarian leaders who use the platform to incite violence and genocide while spreading hate and disinformation. So that's the reality. But when you see Clegg up there, the former Deputy Prime Minister of the UK, he was the head of a party that stood for nothing, and he clearly stands for nothing, but he's a perfect front man because he's well-spoken and articulate. I find this whole situation quite disgusting, that Facebook is it's engaged in... What would you call it? Information washing? We have greenwashing going on. How would you describe what they're doing? I think that information washing is probably too too kind. I think that they are creating a platform for not as we all know, hate speech to thrive, but as we've been pointing out for the last couple of years, to actually threaten democracies and their disregard for that. Um for uh, Facebook, Zuckerberg, Clegg, all of them, it makes you question a moral center. So given that you've got this global alliance going, I mean, the record of Facebook's lack of social responsibility in the, the rest of the world, apart from the first world, I guess, they've organized and in, they've been used to organize and incite violence in Ethiopia, which is country being torn apart brutally. They've contributed to genocide of the Rohingya Muslims in Myanmar, and they've been catering to the BJP party, the racist party in India, headed by Modi. And, of course, Modi, they're now helping Modi censor a BBC documentary about Modi's role in the pogroms that killed thousands of Muslims, which he was entirely responsible for. So, And they've done similar things in Vietnam, at the request of the Vietnamese government to suppress speech and information. So their record basically, in, you know, in the rest of the world is pretty dismal. I mean, do you think that the American users of Facebook could be better informed about where their money is going? Well, I think that's a, that's a really good question. We, we and all of our allies that are fighting to protect democracy around the world do our very best to make folks in the United States aware of this issue because of course you know when you like there's 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 nothing wrong with the fact that when you are you live in the United States and you use Facebook you don't really think about who's using it across the world but when you start to understand that things like January 6th were organized on Facebook or um, Charlottesville uh, in 19 and in 2017 was organized on Facebook. And then if that's happening in the United States where it, we have the best protections that social media is, and I say willing to offer, not can offer it, then think about what it means to countries and with vulnerable or uh, fledgling democracies in countries where, you know, uh, it, they, the languages are not, are not well known, um, and and then the, and then you and also they don't have large economies. Then you ha- then you see a different picture. You s- Facebook is literally, and other social media companies are quite literally threatening all democracies, and in some cases are on the verge of destroying them. Well, of course, Zuckerberg has a twin in Elon Musk, who just spent forty four billion dollars taking a public company private in the name of free speech, which in itself is just absolutely absurd. And he's basically a right-wing troll. He's, By the way, he's been enabling Modi in India to suppress that BBC documentary, at the same time spreading the most vile disinformation and posting all kinds of lunatic tweets. So this is this is a case of... Dracula in charge of the blood bank. I mean, f- imagine f- spending $44 billion just to own the libs. I, I actually can't imagine. I, you know, I think we all wondered what, uh, you know, was it ego? Uh, was it arrogance that in the beginning when he when he said he was going to buy Twitter? And now, of course, we wonder if he he really did want one of the largest sort of 
political uh, social media platforms if he wanted control of that. But whichever his motive was, I know for positive that he had no idea what he was getting himself into. It, it, he had no idea of the challenges of not just keeping hate speech and uh, threatening democracy uh, language offline, but all the ins and outs of all the communities that have to be protected, harassment, children, you know, the list just goes on and on. He had no idea. And he really, it's clear to me at this point that he did not take the laws and the U.S. has very few laws regarding social media. But Europe, as you know, the U.K. Is, has got some stuff that they're trying to get past. They're not, they are not interested in his lack of experience. They want him to follow the rules and if not, pay the fines. Well, why can't we do it here? I mean, it's the fact that under the Communications Act that Clinton and Al Gore pushed through, they have no responsibility. You know, journalists and newspaper publishers and TV stations, you can't just print or say what you think. You've got to print and say what you, you can prove. You have to have sources. Lawyers check. You have editors. But they have no such constraints. They're like the piano player in the whorehouse. Oh, we're just the conduit, you know. We have no responsibility. So that's that's in the law. I think it's what, Section 230? Two, 230, two, 230, yes. Yeah, of the Communications Act. So how, how about dealing with that? How about overturning that? Well, I, there, there have been some proposals. I know that there is going to be another piece of legislation introduced or reintroduced here um, in the next couple of months. It, it it doesn't get rid of 230. It doesn't it does not make the social media companies completely liable for everything that is on their platforms, but it does in it does insert some protections around, say, civil rights or um, harassment or fraud, that kind of thing that would hold them liable to some degree. And I think that it has it will have large uh, support among the civil rights and social justice world it's but given the way that our congress is right now where you have some uh senators like cruz for example or somebody like uh desantis from florida who want to prevent the companies from even moderating hate speech or taking down stuff that's based on a ideology or a, a you know opinion when it even when it violates these sort of hard won community standards that we've fought for for all these years, I mean, it, it, it's it's outrageous and it's inexplicable. And this is what we're dealing with. This is why the U.S. doesn't have any any laws. So what can be done? I mean, some people are protesting Musk's ownership of Twitter and even, by the way, of Tesla's and a lot of Tesla owners are now feeling ashamed of the car that they drive. So they go to Mastodon, but apparently it's not the same. Is there any alternative to Facebook? Well, the alternatives to Facebook are, and I don't even know that they're really alternatives, but the companions to Facebook are, are Twitter, YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, Snapchat. You know, you, you've got some platforms out there that do sort of the same thing but the 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 challenge is, is that for every every step backward that one of these companies takes, it gives the other ones the freedom to also step backward. And so putting Trump back on the platform, I mean, first Musk did it, then Facebook did it. I won't doubt at all if YouTube reactivates his channel. It's currently frozen, but but there. Um and and now they can point to each other and say, well, so-and-so did it, and this is their argument, so we're going to get on board. Instead of having the courage of their convictions to do what is right, To I mean, when, it, when you have huge corporations like this, billions of dollars, bigger than some small countries, and they, do, they, they forgive themselves the responsibility of protecting society, it's outrageous. Yeah, but, but Facebook owns a lot of these other companies, don't they? What, they own Instagram. That? Yeah, Instagram, not TikTok, obviously, and not and not Twitter and not YouTube and or Google. But they 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 
you know, they're they're sort of not allowed to buy up the companies anymore. Um, so, I mean, I, I, one thing that that you can be done and is uh, this antitrust stuff, because that hits them in their uh, in their pocketbook. None of none of these companies want to be broken up. None of these companies want to be declared a public accommodation. And so the threat of that would we have some hope of it getting them to clean up their act. Not a lot, but as you know, the DOJ just filed against Google just last week. Um, so it's it's the things that are going to impact their pocketbook. So there isn't there isn't really a, a viable consumer boycott movement just to hear in, in closing you think the best way to rein them in is through antitrust well in the united states through public pressure and and i mean the antitrust stuff and then also um the making them or making them fearful that their bottom line is going to be impacted across in europe and other places like we mentioned they there are some regulations in place but it's not unfortunately big boycotts do make a statement and they are, they can be productive in drawing attention to the to the um the, the bad acts of the platforms but it's not the big companies who rely on them it's the small companies you know or it's the it's your local hardware store it because the system is such that we don't have a classifieds in the newspaper anymore this is where they do their advertising and if they're not able to do it then their, their business is really in jeopardy and so it's it's a it's a difficult situation to to navigate right not only are they socially irresponsible they also have really hurt the journalism business and the newspapers oh gosh yes so there's no local newspapers left and what two thirds, three quarters of the American people get their information and news from Facebook. That's uh, right. It's shocking that this man child, uh, this little right wing jerk, and the other right wing jerk, the troller, Musk, have so much power. But it's, I think it if it, uh, <laughs> we have think, five people controlling the world, you know, it's 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 insane. Well, I thank you for joining us here today, Wendy Vire. Thanks for having me back, Ian. You take care. You too. And again, I've been speaking with Wendy Vire, who's the president and co-founder of the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism, where her work focuses on the effects of extremism on our society, systemic racism, economic inequality, immigration, criminal justice reform, and LGBTQ rights. Previously, she was the chief communications and development officer at the Southern Poverty Law Center, and she's the author of a new report at the Global Alliance Against Digital Hate and Extremism. Democracies Under Threat, How Loopholes for Trump's Social Media Enabled the Global Riots of Far-Right Extremism. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into whether weapons deliveries from the U.S., Germany, and other NATO countries will arrive in time before a new Russian offensive and mistakes made in dealing with Putin as the war in Ukraine will soon enter its second year. When you care about the issues of the Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Angela Stent, who is a senior advisor to the Center for Eurasian, Russian, and East European Studies at Georgetown University, and a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, and the co-chair of its Hewlett Forum on Post-Soviet Affairs. From 2004 to 2006, she served as National Intelligence Officer for Russia and Eurasia at the National Intelligence Council. And from 1999 to 2001, she served in the Office of Policy Planning at the United States Department of State. She's the author of The Limits of Partnership, U.S.-Russian Relations in the 21st Century, and most recently, Putin's World, Russia Against the West and with the Rest. And she has an article at Der Spiegel, As long as Russia has 6,000 nuclear warheads, it will remain a threat. Welcome to Background Briefing, Angela Stent. Glad to be on your show. 
Well, thanks for joining us, Angela. And just to clarify, I guess it's more of an interview that you did at Der Spiegel as opposed to an article. But just to touch on on the current situation, do you think that the weapons that have been pledged, the Germany's tanks and UK's challenges and the US's Abrams tanks and other weapons that Zelensky's been begging for, are they going to get there in time and the Ukrainians are going to be trained up to use them? Because more and more reports indicate that Putin's planned offensive could happen soon, within this, maybe in a month. Yes, I think that's, it's a very serious question. Uh, the British, I think, are already training the Ukrainians, but the leopard tanks from Germany and other countries probably won't get there for another couple of months. And then, of course, the people have to be trained to use them. And the American tanks aren't going to get there until, I think, the end of the year. And we don't know when the spring offensive will begin, um, but we know that there will be one. And it could begin within a month. It could, you know, wait three or four months. But it, it's not clear that these weapons will get there in time for the Ukrainians to use them most efficaciously during this offensive. Well, there is an offensive underway, too, in the Donbass, where the Ukrainians are holding the line, but they're just facing wave of, after wave attacks of some of these Wagner prisoners who the Ukrainians describe as zombies. They're drugged up and they just, you know, come in waves and they mow them down. So it's not as if Ukraine is already, its military is not already under a great deal of strain. Of course, that's true. So the Ukrainians in September and October were able to take back some territory uh, that the Russians had occupied. But now, as you say, I mean, there's very fierce fighting going on uh, around a town called Bakhmut uh, and in other parts of the Donbass. So the Russians have now begun to push back again. And then if you add to that the constant bombing of infrastructure, um, and we've seen horrifically what happened in Dnipro a couple of weeks ago when an entire apartment uh, building was destroyed. So the, the, the fighting goes on. And I think when we talk about a spring offensive, it, it, the assumption is this would be putting into play uh, about 200,000 young men who were mobilized a few months ago and are apparently being trained. So it would just be putting more troops and probably more um, tanks and ammunition into the fight. So why then, faced with this reality, uh, and you can understand why Zelensky is at times obviously almost hysterical, uh, understandably so. Why the truculence? Why? What's going on with Chancellor Schultz? I understand, you know, the Social Democrats were wedded to Wandeldurst handle the idea of peace through trade. And I don't know, I'd heard somewhere that Schultz is a protege of Schroeder, who has clearly been in Russia's pocket in a deep way. What's happening there, do you think? Is there uh, this turning point? Is it real? And is it going to, you know, happen in time? I mean, the turning point, it's been turning slower than I think many people thought it would when Schultz made this quite impassioned for him speech just after the war began. I think that the issue in Germany is that for 70 seven or 78 years, Germany has thought of itself as a civilian power, that it didn't want to have anything to do with militarism anymore. Uh, and that was the way it was going to deal with its Nazi past. Uh, and plus, uh, the you know, the historical memory of the German invasion of the Soviet Union. Um, the Germans, of course, like to talk about all of the Russians that died during World War II. But of course, Germany invaded through Ukraine, uh, and of course, killed millions of Ukrainians too. But I think it's this historical memory. It's very deeply ingrained in the Social Democratic Party. Um, it's also deeply ingrained in the former East German Communist Party, uh, now known as Die Linke. Uh, it, and of course, in the far right as well, that is, is friendly towards Russia. And that is why the tank issue particularly was so controversial. Um, but it does appear now that the majority of Germans do favor sending those tanks. Uh, but Chancellor Scholz seems to move very slowly um, on all of these issues, and he would not have allowed the Leopard tanks to be supplied had the U.S. not agreed to supply Abrams tanks, because the Biden administration actually didn't want to do that either. So I think that in the German case, it's, it's this 
the historical memory and then the lingering belief uh, that Germany has to engage in Russia with Russia um, and that Russia you know, will be a partner in the future as well. So what then is the situation vis-a-vis Angela Merkel, who you mentioned in a critical sense that you felt that during the, I think, the George W. Bush administration, she made some missteps. She was supposed to be somebody that actually could talk to Putin, speaking both his language and he speaks her language as well, and that he was kind of, she was kind of the adult in the room that would call him regularly just to make sure he was in touch with the real world, which he clearly isn't in touch with the real world anymore. Right. Well, and I think she was for a long time the Western leader who probably did understand him best. Not only does she speak Russian, but of course she grew up in East Germany and she understood the system. But I think there were two things. One of them was she was always under some pressure from the German business community to intensify the economic relationship, to do uh, the second uh, Nord Stream uh, gas uh, pipeline deal. Uh, and I, and and so she was sort of wedded to that. And the other mistake I think that was made was in 2008 at the Bucharest NATO conference when the Bush administration was pushing for Ukraine and Georgia to get membership action plans as a preliminary course to joining NATO. Um, Germany and France were both very opposed to that, but she took the lead then in crafting language in the communique that came out that year in 2008 saying Ukraine and Georgia will join NATO. So they didn't get the membership action plans and they actually got nothing. Nothing was ever done to put either of those countries on the road to NATO enlargement, but it it was wonderful because the, for the Russians, because Putin could seize on this and say, look, uh, Ukraine's imminently going to join NATO. And that's one of the justifications he gave for the invasion. Uh, of course, completely untrue. But I think that was really quite mishandled by her. So the worst of both worlds, right? Mm, yeah, because the Ukrainians didn't get any. Right. They weren't on the path towards joining NATO. So you mentioned the far right in Germany, the AFD party. What about the far right? in the U.S. House of Representatives that seem to be the tail that wags the dog of the new Speaker McCarthy. Do you think they can cut aid to Ukraine? And if I was in Putin's shoes, I would think that an active measures campaign against the U.S. House of Representatives and and using people like Tucker Carlson on Fox News would be Putin's best play. Oh, I'm sure it is. And I'm sure that's already going on. <laughs> um, so I think it is possible that the Republic, even though there is a bipartisan consensus still in both houses of Congress that we should be supporting Ukraine, there's going to be much more scrutiny. The sort of Trump wing of the Republican Party, I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene, I guess, is the uh, most vivid example of this, is saying, you know, we we shouldn't be sent doing anything for Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine isn't important for us at all. And we need the money here. So I think what you're going to have uh, during 2023 is a more vigorous debate about what we're supplying Ukraine. There's definitely going to be calls for more oversight that we have to make sure that the weapons and the money are going to the right people. And I think that will come to a head in the fall, uh, I think beginning in September when they're debating then the allocations uh, for next year. Um, you know, until then, I think we're pretty secure because uh, a significant amount of aid and, and military hardware has also been promised. But I think we shouldn't um, count on that being so, for instance, in 2024. Uh, and of course, what the Russians are really waiting for is for Donald Trump or someone like him to come into office in 2024 and completely rethink U.S. policy toward Ukraine. So, Angela Stent, in your De Spiegel interview, you mentioned that there was a peace agreement brokered by Turkey in March and at that point, Russia had agreed in principle to withdraw to the pre-invasion lines in February, on February the 24th, and that the Ukrainians would pledge not to join NATO in return for security guarantees from the West. And the deal fell through uh, because of the atrocities that the Russians had committed at Bucha. Presumably at that point, Zelensky could not accept the deal because of the outrage. What happened behind the scenes there, do you think? 
Well, so this was a preliminary agreement. Uh, it didn't that doesn't necessarily mean that the people at the top had signed on to this, but it was something that the that brokered again by Turkey um, that they'd agreed on. I think it was it was the atrocities. It was the and then the Russians themselves uh, didn't pursue this agreement anymore. In other words, I don't know how serious the Russians ever were um, about about this agreement, but I think it made it impossible to think about even negotiating something with Russia uh, and getting back to the question of could you trust that the Russians would in fact implement what they'd signed. And so that deal, of course, is now impossible to imagine. The Russians would never agree to, at this point, to agree to withdraw to where they were on February 23rd. They've now annexed, quote unquote, four territories in Ukraine that they're demanding Ukraine recognize. And the Ukrainians um, now, of course, are not willing to say that they will never join NATO uh, because uh, they would like to join NATO and they would like to also have some kind of security guarantees, at least from the Western powers, um, to deter Russia from invading them another time. So you also, uh, one of the things that's always concerned me, Angela Stent, is that I don't think in geopolitics before we've ever had the combination of national security and organized crime, nuclear weapons and the mafia. And given the collapse of the, or the hollowing out of the Russian military and their poor performance so far, one wonders about the custody of the nuclear arsenal, which is the largest nuclear arsenal in the world, whether or not, I mean, they're professionals, I understand, that guard the nuclear weapons and the warheads in storage, but maybe, you know, they're going to start pulling those guys and putting them up the front. Do you have any qualms in that regard? I don't think so, not at the moment. I think, first of all, we would know if the, uh, if some of those things were happening. And secondly, yes, the, the Russian military has performed poorly, uh, but I think on these core issues like the uh, safety of nuclear weapons, I think those are still, that, that system is still intact. What would be much more concerning is, you know, some people talk about the fact that at the end of this war, if the Russians continue to do so badly, you might have regions in Russia that wanted to break away from the Russian Federation. I think at, at that point, if there was if something like that happened, then you'd have to be very worried about the safety of nuclear weapons, just as we were when the Soviet Union collapsed. And of course, at that point, the United States with the non-Luga legislation gave money and assistance to post-Soviet Russia in securing those nuclear weapons. But I think for the time being, um, the, that, that system is still in place to, to keep them guarded. And in the Der Spiegel interview, you were asked about, you were talking about Putin's imperial dreams and the Der Spiegel interviewer brought up John Kennedy in the Cuban Missile Crisis. And of course, we still have sanctions against Cuba to this day. And you said at the time, the issue was nuclear weapons that could have reached the United States within minutes. Today, there are no questions of NATO moving nuclear weapons close to the Russian border. I know the Russians always say that we have a sphere of influence in Latin America that may have been true in the past. But today, just look at Mexico, one of our closest partners. Mexico hasn't condemned the Ukraine war. It has not criticized Russia, and it isn't supporting our efforts to help Kiev militarily. It doesn't sound like the country is a vassal of Washington. So that sort of uh, brings us to your book, Putin's World, Russia Against the West and With the Rest, the rest, is it true that the rest, the third world or the global south, support Putin? They did have a vote in the General Assembly, the UN, which condemned Russia. But what's the breakdown there, Angela? Well, I think most of what we call the global south um, has not condemned Russia and it hasn't sanctioned Russia. Um, and it wants to be neutral. Um, you know, India, uh, which is, after all, a U.S. partner in the quad with Australia and Japan, India is remaining fiercely neutral. It's true that Prime Minister Modi has criticized Putin's nuclear rhetoric. But South Africa, um, this is a, a, another of the BRICS countries. We just had Foreign Minister Lavrov was there last week, and he signed various agreements. They're going to do joint naval exercises, the South Africans with the Chinese and the Russians. Um, and so there, and if you look at most of the countries in the Middle East uh, and many in Latin America, 
they see this conflict as an internal European conflict. And many of these countries say, um, you know, what Russia's doing is no different from what the US did in, you know, choose your conflict, Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan. That doesn't mean that they all support Russia, uh, but it means that they're not willing to condemn Russia, that they still want to do business with Russia, and that they, uh, you know, a lot of these attitudes towards what Russia is doing is determined by the views that these leaders have of the United States and their populations as well, and they're and they're much more skeptical there. So, uh, and the Russians know this, and the Russians have been very careful to cultivate uh, relations uh, with the countries in the global south under Putin, particularly, you know, let's say in the past ten years, and a lot of this has paid off. And so when. You know, President Biden says Russia is a pariah because of this war. It's a pariah for the collective West, but not for the rest of the world. Well, Angela Stent, I thank you for joining us. There's a bunch of other questions I had, but we've run out of time, and I hope we talk again. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Angela Stent, who is a senior advisor to the Center for Eurasian, Russian, and East European Affairs at Georgetown University. She's also a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and co-chairs its Hewlett Forum on Post-Soviet Affairs. From 2004 to 2006, she served as National Intelligence Officer for Russia and Eurasia at the National Intelligence Council. And from 1999 to 2001, she served in the Office of Policy Planning at the U.S. Department of State and is the author of The Limits of Partnership, U.S.-Russia Relations in the 21st Century, and most recently, Putin's World world, Russia against the West and with the rest, and she has an article at Der Spiegel, as long as Russia has 6,000 nuclear warheads, it will remain a threat. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the relationship between the Afghan and Pakistan Taliban, which first claimed credit for the bombing of a mosque in Peshawar that killed over 100, mostly policemen, and wounded over 200. It's the same old Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Christine Fair, who is a professor in the Security Studies Program within Georgetown University's Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service. She previously served as a political officer with the United Nations Assistance Mission to Afghanistan in Kabul and is the author of Fighting to the End, The Pakistan Army's Way of War, and in their own words, Understanding lashkar e taiba and she speaks and reads Hindi, Urdu, and Punjabi. Welcome to Background Briefing, Christine Fair. Oh, hey, thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And is there a real sort of split now emerging between, well, it's not between the Pakistan Taliban and the Afghan Taliban, but in as much as the Pakistan government's been trying to negotiate with the Afghan Taliban, who they have helped, uh, as you and I have discussed over the years, rein in the Pakistan Taliban to no effect, and now the Pakistan Taliban have claimed responsibility and then rescinded their responsibility for this horrendous attack on a mosque in Peshawar on Monday that killed 101 mostly police, and wounded 217 others. Right. So, I mean, I don't... So there's not actually um, a mystery here, right? The Afghan Taliban and the Pakistani Taliban, they share a religious orientation. They share, which is to say, they all come from this archipelago of Deobandi mosques and uh, madrasas, religious seminaries in Pakistan. They share similar aspirations to uh, spread their particular versions of Sharia in both Afghanistan as well as Pakistan. And I think the big issue that Pakistan has really not handled very well is that Pakistan has always wanted to have a number of militants, the so-called good militants, like the Afghan Taliban, like Lashkar-e-Taiba, Jaisal Mohammed, Hizbul Mujahideen, 
good good militant groups um, are those groups that operate largely at Pakistani behest to conduct operations in Afghanistan and or in India, which advance Pakistan's foreign policy objectives. The problem is, is that there's such overlapping membership across these different Dale Bundy groups that it's very difficult for you to, to help and assist, aid and abet one militant group, which you consider to be the so-called good Taliban who work in Afghanistan, without there necessarily being spillover effects, and I may also add um, spillover weapons, that get into the hands of those groups that want to target, um, in the case of the Pakistanis, the, the Pakistan Taliban. So you just, you can't throw, you, you can't just build a fence around the so-called uh, good militant groups and keep them entirely separate from the so-called bad militant groups. And that's what Pakistan has tried to do. The only way that Pakistan is ever going to be free of the myriad forms of Islamist terrorism, which does far more to undermine the security and sanctity of Pakistanis than Indians, is if it were to do away with relying upon Islamist militancy as a fundamental tool of Pakistan's foreign policy. And there's just no evidence that Pakistan is ever going to do that. But are they engaged in a wake-up call or buyer from no. wars, having, having helped the Taliban, and now the Taliban is not helping them no. rein in the Pakistan Taliban, who have sanctuary there, and apparently the Pakistan Taliban have moved into the Swat Valley. They're, they're threatening businessmen and doctors and professionals, you know, extorting money. What's the distinction between the politics and the... Sharia law or Islamism and criminality. All right. So the first thing to remember is that these Pakistani, these so-called Pakistani Taliban, they actually began to form way back in 2004. And they, it was a series of militant commanders that were largely operating in Pakistan's so-called federally administered tribal area, which was this belt that had this colonial era um, regulation to govern the place called the Frontier Crimes Regulation. And it was sort of used as a buffer between Pakistan and Afghanistan. So in 2007, these different Dale Bundy militias came together under the rubric of the so-called Pakistani Taliban. Um, they also began operations in SWAT um, pretty quickly thereafter. And at one point under the former president, um, the former PPP president, Zardari, they had even considered making a deal with the Afghan Taliban, excuse me, the Pakistan Taliban in SWAT, that they could just go ahead and set up their Sharia, right? And that faltered um, for a number of reasons. Um, namely that the Dale Bundy Pakistani Taliban had a very different notion of Sharia than the religious scholars who actually live there. So the Pakistanis have had a long history, going back to 2004, actually, trying to make deals with these various commanders of the Pakistan Taliban. They were vanquished for several years, uh, in part due to several reasons. The Obama administration really stepped up its drone program against these different Pakistani Taliban commanders in Fatah in what Mark Mazzetti has described in his book, a series of so-called goodwill kills, right? So I think we've talked about this in the past. So those drone attacks on these Pakistani Taliban commanders um, and also their middlemen made it really difficult for them to operate. Also, the Pakistan military, as well as the Frontier Corps, began um, aggressively targeting these Pakistani Taliban um, that were also being targeted by drones. And, of course, um, this was durable in some measure because the Afghan Taliban were still fighting um, U.S. NATO forces. And you'll recall that in 2009, um, 
there was a fairly large surge of soldiers going into Afghanistan. And um, for a variety of reasons, the, the Taliban were, were taking significant losses. But naturally, as the Afghan Taliban began picking up its strength, um, in part as the Americans continued their retrenchment from Afghanistan, the Pakistani Taliban were given a fill-up and were revivified. So the fates of these two organizations are inherently linked. And so what they're doing now in SWAT, they're doing what they did back in 2009. And there were, you know, there were some really funny stories about who some of these early um, Pakistani Taliban commanders were. You know, one was a bus driver. One was just an ordinary criminal. One had actually been a failed um, bodybuilder and ski instructor. So to your question, you know, what's the difference between a criminal organization and an Islamist organization? I think this has always been the question. The same thing is true of the Afghan Taliban. The Afghan Taliban funded themselves through criminal operations, right, which was through um, the, the poppy trade, through uh, smuggling of wood and gems and marble. So the organizations, both the Afghan Taliban and the Pakistani Taliban, they've always relied uh, upon essentially criminal activities for funding. So there's essentially that for people who haven't been watching Pakistan since 2009, um, this might seem to be a novel development, but it's really um, it's it's in many ways to me a lot like Groundhog Day, with one really big difference when. Uh, you had the sectarian fighting established in Iraq under Zarqawi, even before the Islamic State had been declared, many of the Pakistani Taliban actually went to fight in, in Iraq to kill Shia, and then to, they, they also went to Syria once the Islamic State was formed to fight Alawites. And the reason for this is that the Deobundi uh, interpretive tradition to which they belong has always had a very strong anti-Shia component. And so they're also very closely tied to the anti-Shia militant groups that have been targeting the Pakistanis now for many decades. So what's happening with the uh, the army and the intelligence ISI, which is a powerful force inside Pakistan. I mean, there's the old long-standing joke that Pakistan is not a country with an army, but an army with a country. And when you look mm-hmm. at the fact that in December of 2014, Taliban uh, militants, I'm talking about Pakistan Taliban, mm-hmm. militants killed 147 students and teachers in an army-run public school. And now yeah. they've gone and blown up this mosque in the area called Police Lines, which is in yep. the fortified part of Bashar, where, where all the government buildings are, and you know that's pretty brazen, and it, we don't know how they got in there, the suicide bomber. So it raises questions about, uh, are the, the army that has such pervasive powers and the intelligence service that is so, it's even threatened your life, they seem to be outmatched here. I don't get it. So, look, they're not outmatched in, in that sense. I, I mean, I don't, I don't think it's fair to say that they're outmatched. I mean, the problem is, and we go. This goes back to Musharraf's time, right? There were several attempts on Musharraf's life, um, all of which had insider assistance. Um, there was a really important suicide attack on the special services group at Tarbela. They, this special services group, was very um, distinctive because it was the the which is like basically Pakistani special operators. This group was the group that led the siege or the attack and subsequent siege on the Red Mosque in Islamabad. And I might add the Red Mosque uh, is also an important um, center for these Deobundi terrorists as well. So the ability of these militant groups to strike with considerable precision, you know, it is notable. Um, And then... As I, as I indicated, in the early years of the Pakistan Taliban, their primary targets were the police. 
um, because the police are very, you know, they're soft targets compared to the army, right? The, um, I, I don't know if this is still the case, but um, when I last met, met with the uh, Peshawar, the provincial police chief, the pro- none of the provincial uh, police chiefs had hard, hardened vehicles. They were moving around in soft vehicles. And his police, his police headquarters was not a hardened facility, right? And I know, I remember sitting there thinking, is it when I was meeting with him, it was during the first phase of the Pakistani Taliban. I remember thinking, if they decided to come in right now, we'd all be dead, right? So the Pakistani police are not a hardened target. They are out and about. Um, now, to the question of, you know, sure, police lines is, is a relatively fortified area, but it's not, uh, it's not like getting into um, a military base here in the United States. You know, remember, you know, this is a city, it's open, people live there, people move back and forth. Um, so getting through um, a half-assed police checkpoint is not the hardest thing to do. I think this dimension of this attack is being overplayed. What this attack and the attack on the Army Public School have in common, and it's very frustrating, um, is that the official Pakistani position is that these attacks are not happening by Pakistani proxies gone bad, but rather these attacks are being perpetrated by Indian proxies. I kid you not. Indian proxies. And so this is one of the ways that the Pakistani state tries to have its cake and eat it too when it comes to these militants to keep, to preclude there being any outrage to any substantial degree of Pakistanis against the deep state for using these proxies when um, these proxies attack Pakistani targets. The official story is, well, the Indians are doing it. And I remember about the Army Public School um, and others, um, there was a a notable attack that happened on the airport in Karachi. The Pakistanis actually said, and I kid you not, Ian, that they knew that these were not Muslims because the suicide bombers were not circumcised. And this was told to me during a briefing um, by the ISPR, which is the spokesperson for the various services, including the intelligence services. And I asked the simple question. I said, does the ISI have a foreskin detection unit for suicide bombers? Because I'm having difficulty understanding how you could assemble enough penis fragments to discern whether or not they were in fact circumcised. (laughs) That put an end, that put an end to that nonsense, nonsensical story but if you, you, I mean, all you have to do is Google, you know, uh, Pakistani terrorist uncircumcised, and you will see numerous articles where the Pakistanis have said that the suicide bomber was not circumcised. <laughs> and, so, and Pakistanis eat it up. So, I mean, what's going on with the internal politics? Because it, the ousted recent prime minister, Imran Khan, is blaming everything on the Americans. And, and it's, he's got a lot of traction in the media there, has he not? Um. So that's a complicated issue. Imran Khan needs to be seen in the context of the military's other political creatures that become a Frankenstein. So Zia al-Haq, who is Pakistan's third military dictator, he created Nawaz Sharif, right? Um, He wanted uh, Nawaz Sharif to be the political articulation of, of his vision for Pakistan. And um, Nawaz Sharif uh, made a number of moves where he forgot that he was a creature of the army. He thought that his relationship with Saudi Arabia and his popularity at the polls meant that he could do things that were undermining of the core, I would say, institutional preferences of the Pakistan army, and they're the ones that got rid of Nawaz Sharif, right? The army just, you know, they get rid of you. Um, when Banazir Bhutto got to be too big for her britches, 
they arranged to get rid of her using these different constitutional mechanisms. So Imran Khan was also a creature of the army. The army had to rig polls very massively to get him elected in 2013, right? Uh, That took a lot of effort. The rigging in Pakistan occurs before, during, and after an election. So after the election, the ISI had to spend a lot of money to cobble together a coalition of the billing so that Imran Khan could form the government. And Imran Khan, just as Nawaz Sharif before him, he thought that his popularity and his international friendship, most notably with Turkey, would make him immune from any army efforts to to unseat him. And he began taking positions that were very injurious to the Pakistan army's interests. So um, undermining relations with the United States and the Pakistan army really wanted to continue having a relationship. Um, They took positions on Ukraine that were not consistent with the Pakistan army's position. And in general, um, really began going after the army chief. And so, again, the army working with the civilian institutions, which are pretty much at the beck and call of the army, they were able to unseat him. And so this discord between Imran Khan and the Pakistan army also became a proxy conflict between Imran Khan and the the United States, right? Um, So lots of things are playing out. And what makes this kind of challenging for the army is that it doesn't really have an alternative, right? Um, Shabazz Sharif is the guy who's currently the prime minister. He's least objectionable to the Pakistan army, whether or not um, they will be able to rig an election that keeps him in power is another question, given the street power that Imran Khan wields. So the army is a little bit on its back feet trying to control the, the politics of the country. It's having a little bit of a harder time than it's had in the past. But, you know, I've, I've never been wrong betting on the army. And I'm <laughs> still betting. I'm still betting on the army. Well, just in the last minute then, let's just briefly touch on the fact that the weapons that were left behind in Afghanistan by the United States, $7.1 billion worth of equipment, including uh, 316,000 weapons worth $512 million plus ammunition and other accessories. What's the situation? They've shown up in all kinds of places, right, including uh, in Kashmir. Well, yeah. I mean, the first thing we saw is that the Pakistanis themselves came in and took a a lot of those weapons um, because some of the weapons, the Taliban are just not simply able to operate. Right. So the Pakistan army um, or the ISI did take a lot of those weapons. And ultimately, like, for example, um, Lashkar Taiba um, operatives in Kashmir, as well as Jaish Muhammad operatives have all been found with these American weapons. And so whether, and of course, these groups themselves have had long ties to Afghanistan. Lashkar Taiba's original training bases were in Afghanistan. Um, the Deobandi groups, Jaish and Mohammed is a Deobandi group. It always had close ties to the Taliban and also to Al-Qaeda. So whether or not they got these weapons uh, directly from Afghanistan or whether they got them from the ISI, which I think is more likely, uh, which got those weapons from Afghanistan, um, no matter what, you know, these weapons weren't going to stay in Afghanistan. Everyone knew this, which is why it was just so derelict, like every other aspect of the American withdrawal, to leave all of these weapons um, with the Afghan Taliban. Well, Chris Fair, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Right. Hey, thank you. Have a great day. You too. And again, I've been speaking with Christine Fair, who is a professor in the Security Studies Program within Georgetown University's Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service. She previously served as a political officer with the United Nations Assistance Mission to Afghanistan in Kabul and is the author of Fighting to the End, the Pakistan Army's Way of War, and in their own words, Understanding Lashkar e Taiba, and she speaks and reads Hindi, Urdu, and Punjabi. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, 
please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America My quiet voice Saying something to me I'm not